This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Abraham the neighbor. Uh, He goes down into Gerar today in our lesson today. A few weeks ago, we noticed he went to Egypt. And did the same thing down in Egypt that he's going to do in Gerar today. And they should have learned his lesson in Egypt, but he didn't. But you know what? Um, This lesson today is about some weaknesses in Abraham's life. But you know what? Um, Most of God's children have some weaknesses, don't they? And so the lesson's divided into two points today, as you notice in your handout. Everybody get the handout. Anybody need the handout? Okay. Um, Abraham, the troublemaker. And then when we get to chapter 21, we're going to find out that Abraham was actually a peacemaker. And so while he had some flaws in his Christian character, uh, like most of us do, he also had some very good qualities as well for which we praise the Lord. You know, it's one thing as we study these things, God, and I'll bring this out in the lesson a little bit later on if we get to that far into the lesson today, that, that um, when God, in the Word of God, mentions the sins of his people, and there are numerous people as we read through the Bible that love God, but they failed him in some respect. Now, God doesn't record those things in the Scripture to, uh, to give us a license to sin, He records them as a caution to us. Uh, When you think you stand, be cautious, or else you're going to fall. And the scripture is very clear on that. And and that's the reason why why God recorded the failure of David and uh, of of, uh, uh, Noah, actually, and Lot, and some of the others of his servants. But anyway, uh, let's pray. Father, guide my thoughts this morning as I teach this lesson. Open the eyes of our understanding, and I pray, God, that in reality that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, G.K. Chesterton made this statement. He says, we make our friends and our enemies, but God appoints our next-door neighbors. I thought about that. That, uh, that statement was in Wearsby's uh, material that came from Chesterton. I thought about that, and I thought, well, God appoints our next-door neighbors. I got to think about my next-door neighbors and the opportunity that God has given me uh, to our next-door neighbors. And maybe I haven't been as faithful to that opportunity as I should have. More recently, we have a neighbor that lives on one side of us, that it's actually um, a man and a husband live together and the wife's sister, and they're elderly people. And um, <clears throat> the husband is virtually an invalid. In fact, just recently, last few days, in fact, yesterday was one of those days, the ambulance showed up at the house, and it hadn't been but just a few days before that 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 had happened again. And uh, he's a cancer survivor, but I, but I think it's getting close to the end for him. That uh, had an opportunity 
in a sense, to minister to them in an unusual way. Um, there's a tree that's grown up, and Dave Bassnett got some of the wood from that tree. Uh, helped me get rid of it, actually. <laughs> I appreciate that. But there was a good-sized maple tree, a huge maple tree that grew up alongside of their house that the limbs had grown over onto their house. And it was, in that, it was in that shape for actually several years. And about five years ago, I had some men come and cut some trees down in my backyard. And I said to them, I said, could you give my neighbor a good price on cutting that tree down? And he looked at the tree and he said, I'll cut it down for $200. If you've had any trees cut down, especially trees that size, $200 is a steal. You know, and uh, <clears throat> so I went next door and knocked on the door, and Robert came to the door, and I said, Robert, I said, I got some men here that'll cut that tree down for you for $200. Oh, I'm not going to spend that kind of money, you know. <clears throat> so now he's spending $10,000 putting a new roof on his house. And uh, so <clears throat> uh, I had I just recently had uh, hired a guy to cut down another tree on the other side of my house. And while he was cutting it down, uh, Robert's wife came out and talked to him and said, and said, can you trim up that tree so we can get it off my roof? Gotta put a new roof on the house. And so he gave her a price uh, on cutting, just cutting those limbs down. And, um, <clears throat> and so I, I said to him, I said, how much more would it cost to cut the whole tree down? And he told me it was a sizable amount. And so, and she's standing there listening to our conversation. And I said, uh, Beverly, I said, if I pay the rest of this, how about cutting the whole tree down? She says, that's fine with me, I don't care. So we had the whole tree cut down. And, um, <clears throat> but I had to get rid of the wood somehow. And, and my dear brother over here was very helpful in that respect. And, and I've had an opportunity to to minister to them in a sense, uh, not just on a, that kind of a level, but as a neighbor, uh, I've been able to get a little closer to them than I have in the past. I witnessed to Robert several years ago and, and he told me that he was a Christian, that he had been saved. But as Pastor mentioned in his message this morning, by their fruits you shall know them. And uh, there's no fruit there. <clears throat> and I, I don't think Robert's actually saved, even though he professes to be. And his wife and her sister have been here to church. My wife invited them uh, to, was it a revival meeting they came one time or something, or to a revival meeting. And uh, I think they profess to be saved too. I, I, I'm not sure there, my wife would know. But anyway, we can be neighbors. We can be good neighbors. But sometimes neighbors can be a pest. And um, I've got a neighbor across the street. He's a, retired, he's a retired Marine colonel, one of the best neighbors I've ever had. And uh, they have a summer home up in Rhode Island, and that's where they are now. But, but he cuts everybody's grass in the, in the neighborhood. In fact, he, he's cut Robert's grass. He, he's been cutting Robert's grass because they can't get out and cut the grass. And uh, <clears throat> he's done stuff for me and... and uh, in, in fact, um, one of his neighbors, 
One of his neighbors, uh, who's also a preacher two doors down, calls him the mayor of, the mayor of Jolf Woods. <laughs> That's the subdivision we live in. But he, he knows what's going on, he knows everybody, and, but he's a wonderful neighbor. And uh, that's, a, that's a, kind of interesting for a Marine. Any Marines here? <laughs> but he's a good neighbor, and uh, we get along well. But anyway, <clears throat> someone has defined a neighbor as a person who can get into your house in a few minutes and it takes two hours to get him out. I've not had that problem. Anyway, so neighbors can be a tremendous blessing and, uh, or they can be a tremendous hindrance sometimes. But you know, let's turn that around a little bit. Uh, we can be a tremendous blessing too or we can be a bad influence, a bad neighbor as well. Well, <clears throat> when you think of Abraham as a man who is always performing great exploits for God. And we forget that his daily life sometimes is somewhat of a routine. He had to take care of a pregnant wife, a young son. He needed to manage great flocks and herds while handling all the personal business. Abraham and his chief steward, they were responsible for setting the daily, settling the daily disputes and making important decisions. You know, he did not have a small estate. It was humongous. And um, so in addition, uh, there were neighbors to deal with. As we find out in this lesson today, Abimelech to the south, king of Gerar. And Abraham's dealings with him and his neighbors, uh, he's, seen, he's seen at first as a troublemaker. But then, as I mentioned, then he's noticed as a peacemaker. So let's notice, first of all, in chapter 20, Abraham, the troublemaker. I'm, uh, I'm going to read uh, much of this chapter. I hope that you have already read it. But it begins like this, chapter 20. Genesis. And Abraham journeyed from thence. Where's the thence? Well, it would be Hebron. He's been living in Hebron. But you know, it's kind of interesting in the chapter that you studied last week, in chapter 19, which was the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, we find that Abraham had been in the presence of the Lord. In fact, if you'll, if you'll look at chapter 19 and verse 27, it says this. Um, and Abraham answered, well, 19, 27. Let me get in the right chapter here. Uh, and Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And this is, uh, this is when God dealt with him about, about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and what was about to take place there. But he was in the place where he stood before the Lord. He was probably at one of the altars that he had built. He built many altars, as you know. Every place he went, he, he, he built an altar. And, uh, and that was in Hebron. And so Abraham journeyed from Hebron uh, toward the south country and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Where well, we heard that before, a couple chapters before when they went down into Egypt, remember? That's was several years ago. 
And, um, and you know what happened? You remember what happened there. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said unto him, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, uh, for she is a man's wife. And Abimelech had not, had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Uh, said she not to me, she is my sister, he is my, she is my sister, said he not to me, unto me, said he not unto me, she is my sister. And, um, and she, even Sarah, herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands, I've done this. And the Lord said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffer I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore this man his wife, for he is a prophet. And he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live, and if thou restore her not, Know thou that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning and called on his servants and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done to us? And what have I defended that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that, uh, that thou, what, what sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, and that they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became his wife. It came to pass when God caused her to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me at every place whither we come. Say of me, he is my brother. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them unto Abraham and restored him Sarah his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my hand is before thee, dwell, or my land is before thee, dwell where, I, where, where it pleaseth thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to, he is to come to thee. Behold, he is, to, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that, that are with thee and with all others. And she, and she was reproved. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his handmaids, and they bore children. It's during this time, well, just let me read the next verse. For the Lord had fast closed up the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, there were no children born in Gerar uh, while Abraham was there. And maybe even before, uh, God had... God had caused uh, all the women in Gerar to, uh, to become um, uh, impotent. They were not able to bear children because of Sarah, because of what had, what had taken place. So Abraham was a troublemaker. And um, if you didn't know Abraham before you read this chapter, 
Uh, as you read this, if you're reading this chapter for the first time, which of these two men, Abraham or Abimelech, would you, would you have considered to be a believer? Wouldn't have been Abraham. He's a liar. Abimelech was a good guy. He was the one that had the character. There was a mass difference, though. He wasn't saved, but, but yet he was of good character here. What he did was in innocence. He saw a woman that, that looked pleasant to him, and in their day, you know, a king, uh, if he saw a, a, an unmarried woman and desired her, he would take her to, and put her in, her in his harem, and she would become his wife. So what he did wasn't wrong. After all, he was given the information that they were brother and sister. Now, not, it was not a total lie, but a half lie is a full, uh, but a half truth is a full lie, isn't it? And so, it caused trouble. Well, Abraham's fa failures were tragic. But we can learn some vital lessons from Abraham's failures as we walk in our life of faith. First of all, this is letter A, believers do sin. Not me, preacher. Well, if you believe that, you just lied. If you say you have no sin, you lie and do not the truth. That's what John said, 1 John chapter 1. And so this, cha this, chapter would, this chapter would be an embarrassment to us, except for one thing. The Bible tells the truth about all people. And I mentioned this earlier. Uh, it doesn't hide the fact that Noah got drunk and exposed himself, or that Moses uh, lost his temper, or that David committed adultery and plotted to, to kill one of his valiant soldiers. Peter denied the Lord three times, and, and even Barnabas. Now, we think of Barnabas as being... <clears throat> um, uh, a, a man of, of character and brotherly love, but he laughed into false doctrine at one point, according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 13. So these things are recorded not to encourage us to sin, but to warn us to beware of sin. After all, if these, uh, if these great men of faith disobeyed God, we ordinary sinners, we are... We Ordinary saints, saints ought to be careful. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he, lest he fall. Well, why did Abraham sin? It's a good question. Why do you sin? Why do I sin? Well, let's find out. There are four things. Number one, believers have a sinful nature. Yeah, your sinful nature did not get eradicated when you got saved. Now, there is a group that teaches that, that uh, sinful nature can be eradicated. It's not in the Bible. You can't find it in the Bible. Um, <clears throat> although Abraham had a sinful nature, he'd been justified. Uh, we know that from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He'd been justified. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness' sake, the scripture says. God gave him a new name. It changed it from Abram to Abraham, the friend of God. But that didn't change his old nature. You know, Paul had a problem. You read, it, you read of it in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. Paul says, the things that I would do, I don't do. The things I want to do, I don't do. 
the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. And that big, that long passage of scripture there, Paul ends it up this way, oh wretched man that I am. And sometimes I just have to stand before God and say, oh God, what a wretched man I am. Because we still have that old carnal Adamic nature, sin nature, it's still there. And it'll be with us until the day we die, until God raptures us and then thank God we'll be perfect. We'll be like Jesus said. And so men have a sin nature. But we can have victory over it, but that's not automatic. We have to walk in the spirit if we hope to overcome temptation. Number two, believers live in enemy territory. You know, Abraham moved into enemy territory after living in Hebron, which is called the Hebron means the place of fellowship. He had fellowship with God there. And for about 20 years he lived there. Uh, he, then he decided to go to the land of the Philistines, Gerar, which is just inside of Philistine, Philistine territory. Let's, let's call it border land, border territory. That's where he went. But it was a dangerous place to be. And you know the truth is that we live in enemy territory. Um, uh, the devil is the prince and the power of the air. Uh, this is his ter We're living in his territory. We've invaded his territory. God cast him down to earth after he sinned. And, uh, you know, devils, uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't put it this way, but I'm going to. The devil's in charge down here. But God's in charge of the one who's in charge, right? <laughs> put it that way. Uh, God's still in charge of everything, but, but th this is the devil's territory. We, we've invaded the devil's territory. It's no wonder we have such a hard time. Uh, it's no wonder we're in, we have such a problem with our lives and such a problem with our attitudes and such a problem with our tongue and, 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 and our heart deceives us. And, and uh, all, you know, it's no wonder we're living in, in dangerous territory. And uh, some of us get so close to that, you know, we, we live in borderland. Uh, we, we, we don't want to go full hog into the midst of it all, so we just kind of stay on the border a little bit. That's where a lot of us Christians live, right on the border, you know. On the border of victory. On the border of God's land. And... Uh, and the tragedy is that we kind of enjoy it there. That is tragic, isn't it? Well, after arriving in Gerar, Abraham began to walk by sight rather than by faith. He began to be afraid, according to verse 11. You know, the fear, the fear of man and faith in God cannot dwell together in the same heart. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Well, Abraham started living by sight rather than by faith. He forgot that his God was the almighty God that we learned in Genesis 17, 1. Who, who could do anything and who had, uh, uh, who had uh, coveted to bless Abraham and to bless Sarah. 
And so believers live in enemy territory. Number three, believers often fail to deal with sin. The, ba the, the basic cause of Abraham's failure was the fact that he and Sarah had failed to judge their sin when they dwelt, when they dwelt with it in Egypt in chapter 12. They admitted their sin to Pharaoh, they confessed it to God, but the fact that, they, that it surfaced again indicates that they really didn't deal with it. They didn't depart from it. They, they may have admitted it, they may have confessed it to God, but they didn't depart from it. And um, it was an recurring thing. You remember what we read here that Abraham said, listen honey, when, when we're, in, we're in other places, uh, how about saying that I'm your brother? It's the same thing he told her to do when, uh, when they went to Egypt. So he hadn't really dealt with his sin. And that's the problem we're faced with. Uh, we don't really deal with it. We confess it. And we confess it again. And we confess it again and confess it again and again and again and again. And I want to tell you, the Bible says that God's faithful and he forgives us every, every time we ask him to. 1 John 1, 9. But until we really deal with it and separate ourselves from it, it's going to continue to recur over and over again. We're going to have that battle often over and over and over again. And so we need to deal with it. You know, an insincere admission of sin is not the same thing as a broken-hearted confession of sin. Read Psalm 51 and verse 17, where David pours out his heart to God after his sin with Bathsheba. He pours his heart you know, God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this wicked thing, he says. And you can tell in that Psalm that David finally, after a year of living undercover, and then as exposed by the prophet, Nathan came and stuck his finger in David's nose and says, you're the man, you're the guy. You're, you're guilty. And finally, uh, David's conscience was, conscience was awakened to the point where he said, God, I failed you. I really did. I sinned against you, and I'm sorry, and he meant it. Anyway, if our attitude is right, we'll hate our sin. We'll loathe ourselves for having sinned. We'll despise the very memory of our sin. But people who remember their sins with pleasure and enjoy them again and again in their minds, they've never judged their sin. They've never seen how simple their sin really is. William James, who was the father of American psychology, made this statement. He said, for him who confesses, shams are over and realities have begun. So Abraham and Sarah had convinced themselves that they were not really telling a lie after all. It was only a half-truth. It was, it was only a half-truth. After all, half-truths are not supposed to be as wicked as outright lies, are they? Well, the fact is, they're worse. Because a half-truth has enough fact in it to make it plausible, but enough deception to be dangerous. And as I said earlier, half-truths are full lies. F.B. Meyer made this statement. He said, 
a lie consists in the motive as much as in the actual words. You know, you may actually tell a lie, but the motive behind it is just as sinful. And that brings us to number four. Not dealing with sin has consequences, both for believers and unbelievers. Not dealing with sin has consequences. So believers do sin, but that does not make void our faith. It does not invalidate our salvation, though it may discredit our testimony. It will have an impact on our testimony. Abraham was still a child of God, even though, even though his witness to God had been greatly weakened. However, Abimelech was in a more dangerous position than Abraham, for Abimelech was, was under the sentence of death, according to verses 3 and 7 in chapter 20. Abraham was under the sentence of death. What's all that mean? Well, Abraham was a man of integrity, and when God spoke to him, he obeyed. And he had many fine qualities, but he was not a believer, and therefore he was a dead man. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 and 3 said, we're dead in trespasses and sin. Before you and I were saved, we were dead. Did you know that? I'm talking about spiritual death. We were very much alive physically, but spiritually we were dead. We had no life. And that's where Abimelech is at this point. Abraham had spiritual life. He didn't have a whole lot of discernment at this point. But Abimelech had good character, but he didn't have life. And you know, we see a lot of people like that today. They're good men. They're good. They have good character, men and women. They have good character. They may be honest in their dealings but they're spiritually dead. And that's the greater condemnation because they're under the condemnation of death. We may be under the chastisement of God as his children, but we do have life. And so um, they had two different standings, Abraham and Abimelech, two different standings before God. One was saved, the other was lost. And so any unsaved person who wants to use Genesis chapter as, a, as ammunition against believers, for example, oh, you're all hypocrites. You ever witnessed a, if somebody said, well, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Well, you know, they're more right than wrong when they say that, to be honest with you. Uh, <clears throat> uh, now, I, I, know I'm, I know I'm not talking to the right crowd here when I say this today, but, <clears throat> but, uh, but uh, forgive me for saying it even, that that in a gathering like this, in, in any other church, there would be hypocrites. But I know that's not the case here today. What are you laughing at? I think you get the irony of it all, don't you? Yeah. Well, the world uses that, you know. They, they, <clears throat> they look at the... Uh, church people and say, boy, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Why do they say that? Because they, because they work around them. They live next door to them. Where was I? I lost my place in my notes. But anyway, if anybody uses Genesis chapter 20 as ammunition against us, 
They better consider their own spiritual condition before God. If unsaved people accept what the Bible says about Abraham, that he lied, they have to accept what the Bible says about them, that they're dead in trespasses and sin. And in spite of his disobedience, Abraham was accepted before God, but Abraham was rejected. Abraham was under, Abraham was under God's chastening, but Abimelech was under God's condemnation, and he needed to know God. Letter B, when believers sin, they suffer. Charles Spurgeon made this statement. He said, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. Wow. When we deliberately disobey God, we suffer both from the consequences of our sin and from the chastising, chastening hand of God. Unless we repent and submit unto him, God in his grace will forgive our sins. No question about that. All you have to do is read 1 John chapter 1, and you'll see that God is more than willing to forgive us when we sin. And I'm so grateful that we deal with a God like that. If we didn't, we'd all be in bad, real bad shape. But God is so willing, if, if you confess your sin... John says in, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, God is what? Faithful. And what? Just. To forgive us of our sins. And what else? And to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All of it. Wow. You know the work of Christ on the cross? Such a wonderful work. I challenge you sometimes just to sit down uh, in a private place, just sit there and think about that. What did Jesus really do for me on that cross? What did he really do? He provided for the forgiveness of all of my sins. And, and, and not just me, but for you too. And for everybody else. What a work. What a great work. Well, it took only a few minutes or a few seconds for Abraham to tell a lie. But you know that lie was more than just sounds and puffs of air, a breath in the air. That lie became a seed that was planted and grew and brought forth bitter fruit. God hates lies. Proverbs six seventeen. you have the verses there in your notes. God hates lies. God is a God of truth. His spirit is the spirit of truth. His word is the word of truth. God is all truth. Matthew Henry in his commentary says, A lying tongue is but for a moment, but truth is the daughter of time, and in time it will out. It will come out. So, what did this one lie cost Abraham? Well, look at all these points here. They're what? Five of them. He lost five things. First of all, he lost his character. Philip Brooks, in his commentary, said, <clears throat> the, purpose of lie is the, build the purpose of life is the building of character through truth. Um, God is not just saving souls and taking people to heaven. 
through the trials and the testings of life, and we've said this in so many ways over the course of the last few, several weeks as, as we've been going through the life of Abraham and Sarah. But God, through the trials and the testings of life, he's making saved people more like Jesus Christ so they can be more fit for heaven, and therefore he's glorifying himself. That's a part of the work that he did on the cross, isn't it? Abraham stopped asking what's right when he went to Gerar and began to ask him what's safe. Now, what's safe to do? Well, they'll kill me if they find out that Sarah's my wife because um, Abraham, I mean, uh, Abimelech will want Sarah, so he'll kill me to get her. That's, what, that's his thinking. You know, that's the thinking of a carnal man. This led to his downfall. And you know, once the, lost is, has, once the salt has lost its taste, it's hard to restore that. But also he lost, secondly, his testimony. How could Abraham talk to his pagan neighbors about the true God when he himself was a liar? Last Sunday you learned that Lot lost his witness in Sodom, and today we learned that Abraham lost his witness in Gerar. James uh, Strahan in his book wrote this. He said, a bad man's example has little influence over good men. But the bad example of a good man established in reputation has an enormous power for evil. Think about that for a moment. Imagine how humiliated Abraham was when Abimelech confronted him and rebuked him. He rebuked him, remember? We read that. Uh, in, uh, in verse 16, he reproved him, he rebuked him. Um, it's hard enough to submit to the rebuke of other Christians, but to accept the rebuke from an unsaved person demands a great deal of honesty and humility. You ever been rebuked by an unsaved person? I think I have. And... Uh, and that statement is true, you know, it takes a great deal of humility to accept that, humility to accept that. For, for, somebody that <clears throat> for somebody that probably doesn't know much better, to rebuke somebody that should know better, now that takes an awful lot of humility. That's where Abraham was, that was the position he was in at this, at this particular point. Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done, Abimelech said to Abraham. And I think these words cut him very deep. Christians have to be careful how they relate to those who are outside of the fold. Thirdly, he lost his ministry. Instead of being a source of blessing, he was a curse of judgment. He should have been a blessing. God said, I'll make you a blessing. Back in chapter 12. I will bless them that bless you. I'll make you a blessing to many nations. Well, at this point, he lost that, he lost that ministry. And then number four, he almost lost Sarah and Isaac. In that day, the king had the right to take into his harem any single woman who, who pleased him. And Abimelech thought Sarah was a single woman, and so he took her. And, uh, and were it not for the intervention of God, the king would have had normal relations with her as a, as a wife, as his wife, 
And what the king did threatened God's plan of salvation so that the Lord had to act to protect Sarah and Isaac. Now, now what if that relationship, what if he did take Sarah? He did take her, but he didn't have, he didn't have any relationship with her. But what if he had? What if God had not intervened? What would have happened to God's promise of a promised child, of Isaac? And so he almost lost his wife, Sarah, and then the promised child, the child that God promised that would come, that would be in the lineage of Christ. And then number five, and this is sad, he lost his godly influence over his son, Isaac. Isaac was born a few years later, and, um, and that perhaps is the saddest thing that, and the saddest consequence of Abraham's sin was Isaac's repetition of that same sin some years later. We'll read about that when we get to chapter 26. Isaac did the same thing. He followed his father's example. Now, it's sad when our sins affect outsiders, but it's even sadder when, when our sins are duplicated by our own family members. In fact, Isaac's sin was worse than Abraham's. Why? Because Sarah really was Abraham's half-sister. But Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was only his cousin. And that brings us to letter C. Sinning believers can be forgiven and restored. Let me read the transition. I don't know if this transition is in your notes or not, but let me read what I have here. When believers sin, they're disciplined by God until they come to the place of repentance and confession. God's discipline is not enjoyable, but it is profitable. And in the end, it produces happiness and holiness to the glory of God. And thank God that's what it produced here. Because sinning believers can be forgiven and they can be restored. While God not, did not defend Abraham's sin, he did defend Abraham by controlling. He did defend Abraham, the person. He didn't defend his sin. But he defended Abraham, the person, by controlling the circumstances so that his servant was not completely defeated. God's still in charge, you see. In fact, God called Abraham a prophet, and he made it very clear that Abraham's intercession was the only thing that stood between Abimelech and death. That's according to verse 7 of chapter 20. And the fact that God answered Abraham's prayer for Abimelech is evidence that Abraham had confessed his sin and the Lord had forgiven him. So God doesn't reject his children when they sin any more than we as parents reject our disobedient son or daughter. Um, I'll tell you, I have known parents that have thrown their kids out of the house. In fact, I could, I've, I've literally have known some. I, I know a dad one time that told his son to get out of the house because he was disobedient. I think it's the wrong thing for a parent to do when they do things like that. Uh, I think we still have a responsibility to love our kids and try to train them. Now, they may ultimately rebel and, 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 and reject their parents, and I've seen that too as well, which is a very sad thing. But, uh, but God never throws his kids out of the house. 
He deals with us as a loving father in his grace, his long-suffering, and his mercy. Uh, the situation that I was thinking about, um, that father happened not to be, in my judgment, a good parent. Um, I think he mistreated his children, and his children responded accordingly and rebelled against their, their father, but and that's a different story. Okay. Um, Abraham was justified by faith, and, and he had a right standing before God. Our justification does not change, but we do. In fact, uh, the fact that we are justified before God means that there will be a change in our life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. When a Christian gets saved, there will be a change take place in their life. Um, pastor was, pastor's message this morning was right on target. And uh, I've seen people who made a pretense of getting saved. And, um, and sometimes even under false teaching, they have a pretense of having a relationship with God, but there's no change in their life. My personal experience was when I got saved, man, there was a dramatic change that took place. My whole attitude changes, changed. I was brought up in a Christian home, and uh, uh, we were taught to go to church on a regular basis. When the church doors were open, we were there. Faithful in Sunday school, faithful Sunday morning, Sunday night. We didn't have a Wednesday night service in the church that I attended all the time. We did once in a while. But I had parents who, who taught us the right way, taught us the right things. And, uh, and, uh, but I wasn't saved. And uh, when I got saved, I was, I was a senior in high school. I was in my early days of my senior year in high school when I got saved. There was a dramatic change that took place in my life. It wasn't so much, wasn't so much the change, an outward change. I wasn't a bad kid. Um, maybe one, maybe some people who knew me back in the days may have thought I was. I don't know, but I didn't do things dramatically bad. But I know that when I got saved, there was a dramatic change that took place on the inside. A big change of attitude, change of spirit. The things I used to despise, in a sense, I suddenly loved. I loved going to church. I loved reading my Bible. And, and I loved hearing about God and learning about the Lord. And, and it was just a big change that took place in my life. And so that's what happens when a person gets saved. There will be a change. God promised that in his word. And if there's no change, I don't think there's any salvation some kind of a pretense there. Now I realize that it takes some a little longer to grow than it does others. Some people grow by leaps and bounds in the Lord when they get saved. Others it takes a while to grow in the Lord. But we're all a, pro we're all a project in progress, all of us are. 
And, and all of those changes that may take place in a, in a person's life after they get saved may not be instantaneous. It may take some time. It may take someone who's, who's uh, used to smoking when they get saved. It may take them for a while to get, get over that, to get the victory of that. But you know, I've known, on the other hand, that people who were addicted to alcohol. I've known people to get saved, and it was an instantaneous change. I've known people like that, but I've known others that have struggled with that for a while. And a person who gets saved, their language may not change right away, but I believe it will eventually. You know? Well, anyway, let's move along. So, um... Uh, so a change will take place. Well, let's go down to Roman numeral two. Abraham, the peacemaker. Now, I've got three minutes to cover this, and so um, we'll do it quickly. But, uh, and, and I'm not going to, I guess I won't take time to read these. <clears throat> We're skipping over part of the first part of chapter uh, 21 because this was, the, this was the birth of Isaac and so forth. So actually, it normally it it takes it is a normal transition between uh, chapter 20 and verse 18 and 22 uh, and 21 verse 22. And it came to pass at that time. At what time? About four years later. Than uh, than the end of chapter uh, 20. It came. It, it came. It came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. And uh, so there's a, there's a change in Abraham's life here. Uh, first of all, swearing. That's letter A, swearing. That doesn't, that's not talking about cussing. That's talking about a covenant that they made. Uh, in verse, verses 22 through 24, um, they, um, the, the uh, Abraham, um, let me skip over something. You've got this in your notes. Uh, they, they decided to make a covenant between themselves, Abraham and Abimelech. They wanted to get along. Abraham wanted to be a good neighbor, and Abimelech wanted to be a good neighbor. So they said, well, let's make a covenant. Let's, uh, let's determine to, to, um, uh, to make a sacrifice here. And it was one of those cut offerings where they cut the pieces of the animals that are mentioned there in half and they walk between them to make this covenant. And what they're saying as they walk between the pieces of the animals that have been separated is that if we break this covenant, may God make us like these are, dead and separated. And so it was a covenant, a peace that they made uh, between each other. And, but anyway, Abimelech uh, seemed, uh, he was the one that suggested this because he wanted Abraham to play fair with him. Now, there's some question as to whether this Abimelech is the same one that's mentioned in chapter 20. There's four years that have transpired here. And the reason we say that is because Abimelech is really not a name, it's a title. And uh, Abimelech was the title like king or president is. Uh, he was a uh, Whoever, whatever his real name was, uh, was the king or the president of Gerar. And uh, so we don't know whether it was the same one or not, but anyway, there seemed to be a little mistrust here between Abimelech 
and Abraham. And so Abimelech says, I want to get along with you, so let's make a covenant. And so they do. They make a covenant. And, uh, and, and that's what the swearing is all about. Now, in the verses uh, 25 through 26, we find reproving. Something happened. Um, let's read verses 25 and 26. I know it's here in my Bible somewhere. Let me find it. Here it is. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of the well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I didn't know about this. I, I want not who had done this thing. Neither didst uh, this thou tell me, neither yet uh, heard, I, heard I it until today. He said, I didn't know about this. I didn't know some of my servants had taken your water, Abraham. And, uh, and that's what happened. Abraham uh, dug a well. In fact, you can follow Abraham through history or through location by following the wells that he dug and the altars he made. Every place Abraham went, he made an altar to worship God. And then he dug a well to provide for his water needs, to water his herds, uh, personal, uh, for his own personal use, I guess. I had to take a bath once in a while and probably drink a little water. So he put down a well. Well, what happened was Abimelech's servants, some of Abimelech's servants came along and stole the well. Now, back in these days, <clears throat> water was very precious. In fact, I understand that even in Israel today, water is a commodity that, that is very highly guarded. And back in those days, if you had a well, you had to guard it. Uh, because if you didn't, your neighbor would come in and steal it or fill it in. And we see that happening in the Bible several times where you know, somebody filled in the well and they had to go in and, and uh, reopen the well again. And so uh, Abraham uh, rebuked uh, Abimelech because some of his servants had had stolen his well, taken his water away from him, his, his life's resources, and so he rebuked him. But then in verses 27 through 32, there's a witnessing. And the Hebrew word swear, which means to make a covenant, and that which means to bind by seven things, and the, and, and the word swear and the word seven are very close together, and you see those words, uh, those Hebrew words are transliterated there, but that's, that's the way the Hebrew would spell out. Uh, they're very similar. And so this was, the, this was the time, this time the two men went beyond merely of making an oath. They made a covenant that, uh, that involved slaying animals. And as Abraham and Abimelech walked between those carcasses, we talked about this a while ago, they were saying, in effect, may God do to us more if we fail to keep the covenant with each other. It was a very serious thing. But Abraham went a little further than that because as you read these verses, you'll find out he had seven hue lambs that he set apart, apart from the, uh, the animals that they slew for the covenant, seven hue lambs that they set apart that Abraham wanted to give to Abimelech. And this was in a gesture to Abimelech to prove to him it was kind of a, a guarantee or receipt telling Abimelech that this well is mine. I dug this well. It belongs to me. It doesn't belong to you. And I'm giving you these seven hue lambs 
as a receipt for them to prove that I own them. Now, I don't understand the ramifications of all that, but that's what happened there. So, um, <clears throat> so, uh, so there was the witnessing. And then in verse 33, there's a planting. Uh, he planted a grove, Abraham did. The word, word grove there in the Hebrew literally means uh, a tree. Put down a tree. Well, he was making an oasis. And I think of what Abraham did in this case, he says, I want to be such a good neighbor. I want to be a peacemaker that I'm going to leave a prodigy here. He says, I've been through a lot of trouble. He says, but I want to leave something behind me here that will be a beneficial to people that come behind me. That's what good neighbors is all, are all about. And then verse 33 also, worshiping. They worshiped God. Uh, verse 33 it says, Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called, the name, and called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. This is the first time that this name for God appears uh, in the scripture. Um, it means uh, everlasting God. And God is everlasting. And then finally, waiting. And you can read that. Father God, thank you so much for loving us and providing for us to the point that even in our failures, uh, we can see redemption. We can see your hand, your long-suffering, your guidance in our life. Um, you are the everlasting God. Uh, we fall short a lot, Father, because we're not everlasting. Our souls are, but, but God, we just thank you so much for what we learn uh, from the life of Abraham and Sarah. Help us to be good neighbors. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's Word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.